BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome to the Diversity Remix. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode, a hodgepodge. Diversity headlines from the last few weeks. California just mandated a first-of-its-kind diversity law that makes it illegal to not have diverse people on corporate boards. Is this a good thing to do? Or is it an Orwellian moment? The term Latinx despite popular media's attempt to the contrary, seems to not be catching on with the very people it's meant to define. Should we keep trying for this new catch-all phrase, or should we put it out of its misery? Anonymous diversity ratings are now part of job ratings websites. Does this shine a light on places that need diversity help, or does it reduce diversity to an oversimplified report card that dumbs us down? And Uber, Ben and & Jerry's, and EA Sports all made bold moves in the diversity arena in the last couple of weeks. Are they courageous or cringy? We'll have a look. These and a whole host of provocative items on this episode of TDR. But first, Jesus, I want to thank our sponsor for this episode, the Metaphor Club. Good folks over at the Metaphor Club. The idea of the Metaphor Club was really simple, to create a space in the heart of Los Angeles, the heart of Lamert Park, African, African-American district that was unapologetically creative and unapologetically black. So this is really about creating a co-working space that was a community where people could come together to work, but also to laugh and have community and really create spaces where artists, entrepreneurs, nonprofits, community activists could gather. That was the genesis of the Metaphor Club. We know those guys out there. Um, we've actually used their facilities for a number of things, not the least of which was actually to start this podcast. Um, so we really um, think it's an incredible operation out there. And obviously you can join, you can do your work there. You can do uh, creative sessions, writing rooms. Now, over the course of COVID, they've been shut down. But as of this this uh, podcast, when folks are hearing this, they'll be open, obviously with some restrictions. So it's best to go check out their website at themetaphorclub.com. That's themetaphorclub.com. Really great folks, a great share space, very creative location, opportunity to record podcasts to do uh, special events or just, you know, do your work in a place that um, is very diverse and, again, right in the heart of the Limer Park Pan-African Arts District. So really great spot, and we thank the Metaphor Club for their sponsorship of the Diversity Remix. So, Jesus, we've got a lot on our plate today. This is kind of a new uh, new thing for us. We're trying to 
taken a stab at this idea of a hodgepodge, right? There's a bunch of different headlines that um, hit in the last couple of weeks from in the diversity uh, landscape. And we want to tackle a few of them and just kind of go through them in no order in particular. So kind of a new thing for us, but uh, where should we start? Why don't we start with the California mandate of corporate board diversity, right? By the way, p- part of the reason I think for the hodgepodge is the reality is there's so many things going on. So many topics that really are in this intersection of politics, of business, of culture that I think this week as we looked at it all, like, you know what, <laughs> rather than trying to pick one or two, why Let's don't we do kind of all. try to go through all of these? Uh, but this is, I think, a really good starting point when we look at this 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 mandate that just got signed um, very recently. So California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a law requiring publicly traded corporations headquartered in California to appoint directors from underrepresented communities to their boards. This is actually the first law in the country to, to dictate the racial makeup of corporate, bo- corporate boards. Uh, that legislation he co- co-authored uh, will require people from, people from underrepresented communities to have at least one seat on corporate boards in California by the end of 2021. So it's really, really recent, and it's, it goes into effect right away. By the way, it, it, I think it is worth sharing that this was actually inspired by its first-of-its-kind legislation in 2018, so just a couple of years ago, that required publicly held corporations headquartered in the state to diversify their all-male boards, uh, something that has faced legal challenges from conservative groups. So this is not necessarily new for California. It just obviously steps it up a notch in terms of, of doing this kind of requirement. But, you know, we talk a lot, obviously, in this podcast as it relates to representation of, of many times yep. of these communities, especially as it relates to uh, comparing it versus the population, is a topic that a, f- a few podcasts ago we talked about specifically in the sector of marketing, right, and advertising. And when you looked at that, remember that we discussed for African-Americans, Latinos, significantly under underrepresented, not only in the industry overall, but especially as it went up to more of those leadership uh, positions. But when you see a headline like this, Charlie, I, I definitely have mixed feelings. I know you do. So why don't, we, why don't we start with that? What was your, when you first had read this headline, what was your first gut reaction when you saw it? Yeah, I'm getting to be pretty predictable, aren't I? Um, yeah, I, I was not, um, not a fan of the headline. I think when we talked about it, actually in the TikTok show, in uh, episode whatever that was, three or four, we talked about um, TikTok. And in general, I think, and even in that case where there's sort of at least the semblance of a national security concern, even then we have reservations of the government stepping in to dictate things of to private enterprise, right? In this particular case, that the level of national security hasn't been broached to my mind. Of course, it is a nationally important subject, but we're not at that particular level. And nevertheless, um, we're still having the state of California in this case literally make it illegal to have a certain kind of board. That's what it fundamentally is. I think I don't like it. It just automatically kind of, to me, has that sense of overreach. It also brings up for me a lot of like interesting questions because it's based on statistical representation. So my questions is always, okay, well, what happens once we reach that? Does that mean that right. the law just dies? Does it go away? What happens if there's an overrepresentation? Like in the in a couple of our shows, we've talked about in certain sectors, like in the advertising uh, industry, there's actually an overrepresentation of Asian, as an example. So does that mean that the Asian piece doesn't apply in this case, or you know that it does only to a certain point? 
So I, I think that those kind of questions are brought up to me to mind almost instantly. I also think that, you know, there's going to be, you know, challenges to this from a constitutional perspective. So that's the part that like immediately, like my gut reaction is I hate it. That's my immediate gut reaction. Now, having said that, I do, and I read, I think the same article that you read, um, I do understand that these kind of things get people to sort of pay attention. And I think that's good because, you know, sometimes it's sort of what it takes, but, you know, that seems to me like, you know, the, the, the sense of expediency that it maybe make, makes people pay attention to this issue and therefore look for Latino and black and other board members, which I think is a good thing. But, I, you know, I, 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 so I like, that, I like that effect of it, but I just – I don't like the government getting involved with individual businesses to dictate who should work there or be represented there. I think that especially in public corporations, the stockholders have a big responsibility there and should make their voice heard. And I think there's other ways to do this rather than have the government dictate that. Yeah. I mean I, I feel a little bit uneasy about it. Um, in terms of the, doing it in this manner. At the same time, though, I mean, part of the reason why we're at this point, right? So we, if we rewind a little bit, all of this really is coming in, in response to the George Floyd event that yep. really caused, I think, for the, the whole nation and to some extent the world to actually look at themselves and say, why haven't we done enough? Why haven't we done enough to address some of these racial injustices and if we are going to do something, it has to go beyond simply saying that we're going to be in support of, of, of a better place going forward, in support of, of this cause, in support, maybe support of many of the people that are going out there and protesting. Um, but without action, then that's where many times it actually falls short because the, that whole issue is not a new issue that had come up. It's been you know, happening for a long time. And the reality is when you do look at representation, in many times these type of roles in a state like California that is overwhelmingly diverse and specifically Latino, it's kind of embarrassing when you look at it, right? One of the analysis that was released by the Latino Corporate Directors Association in July found that 87% of public companies headquartered in the state had no Latinos on their board, even though 39% of its residents are Latinos, right? And only 16% of those companies had at least had at least one black board member. So 16% of the companies had one black person. This black is California. Member. California. And, and almost nine out of 10 had no Latinos, even though the state is basically half Latino. Correct. Correct. So when you see that, obviously there, there's, there's something wrong there, right? That's, that's beyond underrepresentation. So part of the challenge that we talk about, and as a matter of fact, when we spoke last in our last uh, podcast, we talked about this dynamic between, or this balancing act between legislation uh, governance and for social also, platforms, right? Yeah. And, and even having what it, how it impacts innovation, how it impacts companies being able to just operate in the way they want to operate. And while it makes me a little bit uncomfortable that it's done in this manner, the reality in some cases, without these kind of mechanisms to force the issue, it, it just may not happen for a while. Yeah. And, and look, and that's you, the part that you, sucks when, is when, that when nine out of ten boards don't have a single Latino, that's no longer a case where you just don't have people that are qualified. They're just not trying. They're not. And that I understand 100%. I mean, we've talked about it. We talk about it a lot in our um, advisory work, the fact that you have to kind of change your watering holes. You have to, it's work to go and find, hey, if you've gotten your last 10 people from X channel, you're going to have to go to Y channel. It takes work and effort to do it. And if this is a mechanism to, to get to that point, like I said, I'm happy about that. 
But it just seems like, you know, I, I could think of other examples, right? It's like, it seems like a pretty intense tool to get that kind of outcome because I don't want the government or the governor in this particular case mandating the construction of individual businesses. I just don't think that's that's within the domain of the state government to do. I understand that the, there's a positive benefit here and that it gets people to pay attention. What I'm curious about is like, why do we have to be at this point where, you, you know, again, on that stat, it's nine out of 10 public companies don't have a Latino on their board right. in a state that is like all Latino. Why does it take this level, you know, to get the government involved in order for you to pay attention? I, I think the reason it, it, it takes that is because the reality in most of these organizations, and it's part of it's human nature, right? We tend to be comfortable with those that we know, right? One of the things that we've heard a lot as it relates to representation, especially in the search for talent uh, that is diverse, is always a question, well, I don't know where to go. I don't yep. know where to find them. Consistently heard All that. All the time, right? You and I were part of a company of where the majority of the employees, probably 80%, maybe more higher than that, maybe 90% plus were Latinos as a startup. It, funny enough, how, how in every single role or in a lot of different roles, we found and by the way, Latino. we're in 100% Latino because we did have representation that were Asian, Middle Eastern, uh, African-American, kind of across the board. Yeah, but we had white too. Yeah, and white too as well. And, but the reality is we could somehow find talent that was diverse in pretty much every single function. But yet when you go to these organizations, they're like at a complete at a loss, right? So I think that's part of the and, dynamic. And by the way, I don't believe for a second the idea of like we're looking for we, – we just can't find qualified candidates or there's a dearth of qualified candidates. I think in 2020, there's an inability of you to actually you – know, the, the fault is on you to be able to find those candidates, not that the candidates don't exist. Right. I just think it takes effort and work and a strategy and a plan to actually achieve that. And I don't think most – you know, companies really take that part seriously. Yeah, it, and it takes a concerted effort, right? Because the, the reality, even if we, even if you have zero ill intent, mm -hmm. I can definitely see a, situ a situation where your board is entirely made up of people that are within your network, people that are either friends, colleagues, people that you, that you used to work with, people that were maybe investors. Mm -hmm. And I can see how that group will, will look all the same kind of profile, the same kind of person, same kind of shade, right? The fact that in California, we had to do this for women as well, sort of speaks to the issue that, yeah, if you are... I'm sure a lot of the, you know, all boys club that like, happens very easily. And I think those things can happen even with zero ill intent. Yeah. And the reality is I think this becomes a mechanism to force the issue. You know, for me, a part of it, when I think about this, though, I almost wonder that if I am a CEO of a company, if I'm a chairman of a board, do I, do in some ways, do I actually welcome it? Like, it's actually a nice kind maybe, of- Maybe, maybe. You know, a nice thing for me because now I have the excuse to A, move out some folks out of my board that I don't really want to See, to but be I there. think if you're at a public company, that's such a different level where like, honestly, if you, if you realize that you have this gap and you have this situation where you don't have the voices on your board that are representative of your consumer base and you're a public company, this is not like small mom and pops, right, yeah, I'm a yeah. public company- the fact that you haven't done anything about that, I mean, I just think about it from my standpoint. If I was a CEO, you've been a CEO. I have not. But if you've been a CEO, the idea of like, hey, I'm going to make somebody the champion of this initiative. Like, you know, hey, Samantha, Bill, Bob, whoever it is, you're in charge of really driving this outcome. We want to change the people we're talking to. We want to go make relationships with new partners that can surface the kind of talent we're looking for. But there's so many ways that you can solve this at that level. The fact that they haven't tried, you know right. what I mean? So the idea of like, is there a CEO going, oh, thank God the government stepped in. I, 
I don't know. I don't think that that CEO, if that's the case, I don't think that that CEO is kind of worthy of, of that right. kind of excuse, <laughs> frankly. But it, but it happens so much, right? So one of the things that we talked about now a, a little while ago, but you know, part of the response to the many companies coming out in strong support of, of diversity, in strong support of having an, almost an anti-racism sort of stance, mm-hmm. a lot of it from a marketing standpoint, and then the counter sort of response to that where people come in and saying, wait a minute, you're saying you're supportive of this cause, but then look at yourself as an organization. Oh, yeah. Look at your, your makeup. And, and no better way in my mind that you see this reflected. And we mentioned this account before. We didn't actually name it. We, yeah, we forgot to name it. But there is an Instagram account that is out there called truecolors.official. And what this Instagram account did is it went and it took the brands of publicly traded or I guess different corporations, but I think, I think a number of them are going to be publicly traded, and then colored them in different shades of white, depending on how white that leadership was in that organization, right? So as an example, and I'm just going off of literally the, the, the latest ones, Chick-fil-A, you can barely see it as 90% white. State Farm, ninety one percent white. But just but the but the, the 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 white pixels account for board members, management team, employees, all of the. All I think of it's, it's only leadership roles. Leadership, so I'm assuming okay. board and, exec, yeah. and executive uh, uh, roles in their organization. Yeah. It's so a probably really cool, not managers or anyone yeah. underneath that is what is what I'm guessing. I had heard again, the definition is good because a little yeah. bit, uh, you know, I'm sure a little bit squishy in terms of you looking at it. But the reality is. If you're an organization like a State Farm that that shows here ninety one percent white, you're probably not super diverse in the leadership roles, right? Depending, no matter where you make that cutoff. Right. right. So, it, so, so, so just give everybody the picture. I mean, everybody should follow this handle because I think it's really cool. But basically what you're looking at is posts that effectively look like white squares. It's almost like exactly. the opposite. And some um, are just, you can't even see them. They're you can't even see them. So it's the logo of the company, but the gradations of white indicate the degree to which they're not diverse. So the more right. white the square the less diverse they the, the company particular is in particular. Yeah, so a, a couple of ones just because to me are super interesting when I, I'm just kind of looking at this list, right? So one is when you think about media companies, which is the area that we're most uh, familiar with where we spend the most time. So an organization like Hulu, for example, shows here, you can actually see it pretty well, it's 44% white, so less than half, okay, their leadership roles. CNN, who is a very... Uh, li- very liberal media company, right? And you would you would think obviously very supportive of of sure. diversity and anti racism shows up at ninety three percent white. Now, wow. once again, is that ninety three percent? Are we is that fact check? Do I know for sure? No, no. But what's Fox News? Just out of curiosity, is that in there? Uh, I don't even see it on here. I don't even think they made the well, list. Would, probably that would be something would be, if it was less than ninety three. <laughs> yeah, that would be something if it was less than ninety three. Uh, another one, Spotify, eighty eight percent. Not surprised. Uh, Adidas, 100%, by the way. Yikes. So uh, it's got to be leadership then. The NBA. It's got to be leadership then great if it's 100%. One, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure is leadership. Uh, the NBA, um, which is, as an organization, has done a lot, being very vocal, uh, 90% white is what they show here. Now, once again, not fact check, but the reality here is you have a number of these organizations that even with very good intent, even with investment in trying to address these issues, I think this is a really a, a great sort of litmus test of, of, of how consumers are looking at these brands saying, look, I love the fact that you're supporting this cause and you say that you're for this. And in some cases, even giving money to organizations overall to help address some of these gaps. But you also look at, have to look at yourself internally, say, what am I doing as an organization to create more opportunities to have better representation, 
Because by doing that, I'm actually going to better represent the consumers that I'm trying to actually engage with. I feel like, you know, people at the executive level, particularly in public companies, need to literally just simplify things and make it a point for themselves as an individual to go find at least one person who could take over their role. Think of it as like succession planning. Right. I, I wish I remember the uh, who it was. There was, um, if I think about it, uh, I'll probably get it, but whatever. I'll think about it later on the show. But it, th there was a person who was a board director for a pretty significant tech company. I'll look it up in the in the background in a second. Who stepped down from his board seat relatively recently in order to make room for somebody who he thought was a qualified board member that was a person of color. Now, I don't necessarily think that you have to do that. But I do think that it's an interesting thing uh, to think about as an extension of succession planning, which, by the way, happens all the time for CEOs at public companies sure. uh, um, that they look for, you know, they plan out like 10 years, like, hey, who's going to take over? I think that board directors should also do that. Like, hey, go find one or two or three people that could step into your role tomorrow as part of a succession planning and have those people be people who come from different perspectives and different points of view and who come from different, um, you know, uh, scenarios from an you know, ethnic and other standpoint. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, even when we spoke before about diversity training, you know, one of the things that we talked about, if you want to create more opportunities for diverse people, one of the best ways to do it is through mentorship, is, is basically increasing your pipeline through your organization, help folks when they do get to those opportunities, when they are going to be put in a leadership position, you also want to be successful, right? You never want to put someone in a position that just because they fill a quota, just because they fill a checklist, you put in a position of to actually to fail because they haven't been given the proper also training, true. the proper yeah. guidance, the proper mentorship yeah. to actually be successful when they get there. And 100%. I think it's a really important element about all of this. So when I think about this topic, while on one hand, I, I, I do cringe a little bit because I could also see... It's going to be, by the way, really hard for those folks that are get added to those boards and they're displacing someone else and they're beginning to look at as, hey, by the way, this is the, the person that got in here only because they're brown. Yeah. And, and that's a tough position that's to be in. That's the downside I mean, of affirmative action. Yeah. I think in my, in my career, I always was, was very hopeful that I never got an opportunity only because of the skin of my color, the color of my skin, sorry. Um, and I'm sure in some cases, maybe I did. I'm sure in some cases, maybe someone looked at me like, look, the right kind of mix of experience, whatever, um, but also happens to be Latino. Let's, let's go with that. It's tough. It's tough to be in that because when you work your tail off, when you have the right experience, to be only given opportunity because of that, it, it's, it's a tough position to be in. At the same time, it does worry me that it, without a mechanism like this, you can, you can fast forward 10 years and maybe in California, maybe it won't be 87%, but would it be... 77%? Would it be 82%? Like, what will be the actual increase that's going to happen there in terms of representation? I think that's the real downside, what you just touched on, of affirmative action and something that I have personally have felt as well. Even in, in, in the business where we're partners, you know, we, we very recently, just a few months ago, got, um, uh, you know, MBE accreditation, as you well know, right? So we were certified from a national perspective as a multicultural business enterprise. It's a process you have to go through. But I honestly... Like I struggled with that. I very much debated with that decision yeah. because I know the kind of work that we do, the kind of work you do, the kind of quality, you know, strategic thinking that we can offer. And, you know, I've been in those situations where and I just know that on a practical level, people carve out, you know, budgets for certain things. Yeah. And it's like the moment it's you're tough, in that particular yeah. category, you're no longer fit 
to have these other discussions, these, these other conversations. So it's a, it's a very real thing, but I also understand the idea of it being a, you know, a mechanism. Now, whether or not it's a successful mechanism, I don't know, because I was reading a little bit about some of this stuff that, you know, the jury's out in terms of whether or not this stuff even works to get people to really pay attention. Um, and there's obviously a bunch of constitutional problems with this yeah. law potentially. And, so and the mechanism is through fines and, and you're right. I mean, the reality is how well does it actually work? But it does remind me because you mentioned earlier about affirmative action. I mean, when, when I, when I, um, was coming out of high school and into college, it was during a time where affirmative, basically through affirmative action, I was able to get into uh, UC Santa Barbara and to study engineering. Now, I remember having this, this actually a very sort of, not heated, but like a good conversation with one of my classmates about this. And he was very against the whole notion of anyone not, be, not, not being able to get into the school for any other reason outside of, their, of, of merit, right? Now, one of the things that I brought up then, and, and I felt pretty strongly about it, was like, listen, if you looked at just my, my curriculum that I took in high school, I should not be in this school uh, or in engineering. And the reason for that is that just, from, just let's just use math as an example. At the high school that I went to, at the time that I went to, the highest math you could ever take was pre-calculus. It doesn't matter how you could be the smartest, you know, genius person in that school. It didn't matter. You could only go to pre-calculus. They when literally I, did not offer. Literally did not offer anything higher than pre-calculus. When I started as a freshman in engineering, most of my classmates had already taken not only pre-calculus, calculus A and calculus B. They were basically two, four courses ahead of me when they started school. So if you were to look at the merit, say like, well, who's taking a higher level of calculus? And you can say this, this kid on this side maybe got an A in pre-calculus and this kid over here got an A in calculus B. Well, by just pure merit, I will take the person that has taken the higher course of math and that's the person that should be, should make, should, you know, should be, in, the, should be in the school. Of course, what's in school actually did very well, in many cases, much better than those that had actually had higher degrees of, of, of calculus and, you know, before going to, into the school. But you can see how without that kind of mechanism to create opportunities for folks like myself to get into the schools that by no fault of my own, I just didn't have the opportunities that many of the other students that were going to the school. It creates this imbalance of dynamic where you, you would never allow some of these schools, some of these kids from schools that come from, uh, that basically serve as those that are more underrepresented to actually get the opportunity to go go to college and be successful. Yeah. Maybe everything's already there about that student, but without having that kind of access, and it, I just, it restricts it. I understand that. And for the record, if in case anybody was curious, while you're talking about calculus and uh, trigonometry and all that, I took uh, physics for poets in, uh, in college. For, I love that. Yeah. No uh, idea what that means, but, but well, I, I love that. I failed like high school algebra like nine times. Basically, the left side of my brain never developed, so I'm only <laughs> right side. I can talk really well, but if it has anything to do with numbers, I fall apart. That's funny. But um, no, but I, I, I totally understand that uh, sentiment. Here's, you know, and this is not a conversation that we had planned to have on affirmative action, but here's how I kind of look at it. I kind of look at it in fitness terminology, right? You and I uh, you know, talk a lot about fitness. You're a runner, you're a triathlete. I work out with weights maybe a little bit more. Uh, you know, that's kind of how we do our thing. And in the in weightlifting, you have what's called a scaled workout. So if somebody can't say like bench, whatever the weight is for that particular day, you scale it down. But the objective, this is what's important. There's two things that are important in my mind. First of all, what is the objective? Is the objective to say you can never get to that point, right? In other words, like, you, we're going to give you 65 pounds because that's all you can lift, okay? I disagree with that. You can start at 65 pounds, but next week we're going to go to 75, and week after that to 100, okay? That's the first thing, is whether or not you're making the accommodation, in quotes, 
because the person's just where they're at. You're meeting them where they're at, right? But you're showing but the them the way is to get them to correct. Right. Okay, so that's one where you thing need them to be yeah. exactly. Second thing, because I don't think a lot of the times it's like, you know, what I felt like is like, oh, poor baby, you can't you can't be at the big table. You can only be at the kids' table, right? So I think that's one thing that's wrong. And the second thing is. Who is the person or the entity doing the accommodation? When the accommodation is done by the state, I get automatically nervous because they're just not very good at things. And so that to me is very different than an individual or a business leader or an owner of a, you know, whatever, like a, 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 even a CEO of a, of a corporate, of a, of a public company doing the accommodation. When the accommodation is done by the government, I just feel less positive about it because I don't think that they have the wherewithal to properly execute those kind of things. So that's, but I understand what you said. It makes all the right. sense in the world. It's like, hey, they didn't offer that class in my high school. How was I even supposed to take it? it, it in other words, if you didn't make the accommodation, I wouldn't be here because I had no other option. But the thing wasn't like, you know, Jesus, you can't learn calculus. You'll never yeah. learn it. So we're going to just let you have algebra. For sure. And I, but I think that's the, you know, obviously what it was trying to solve for. I mean, look, I, I'm, I think I'm with you up to a point in this conversation, I still come back to the same thing. Without any some kind of involvement by state, federal, et cetera, to actually force the issue, you do end up situation which you have in California, right, with 87% of public companies not having a single board member, a single Latino board, board member in their organizations, right? And if you don't have some kind of forcing mechanism, I really doubt that that trend will really change anytime soon. And I think that's, it's unfortunate that it has to happen that way sometimes. And maybe to your point, maybe you get to, you do that for a few years after a while, you don't need it anymore because you've sort of course corrected the situation. Uh, and if that's okay, then I think it served its purpose. The other thing that's interesting about this is that 87% statistic, we're talking about businesses in California. We're not talking about businesses in like Tennessee or Georgia, right? Oh, yeah, and it's sure. like, <laughs> well, even well worse. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe not. I mean, I, I think that's the point that I'm trying to make is that these are businesses overwhelmingly run by people who you would probably put in the progressive camp. And nevertheless, they're really not even close to having their boards represent their consumers or what have you. Yeah. And so, you know, this, and we have to move on to another subject, but I mean, this is, you know, part and parcel to something you've heard me say, but I don't think I've ever said on this podcast, is that I've experienced a variety of different kinds of racism. The racism of, you know, kind of malice where you get into a fight with somebody like physically, and I got into a bunch of physical altercations when I was younger because of my race and who I was. And I grew up in a very undiverse part of, of, of Florida in my high school years. And, but you could kind of hug it out with people. And at the end of the day, I have actually still have good friendships from people that like I disagreed with at the time. And then there's the other kind of racism, which is this kind of racism, the stuff that you're talking about here, where it's like, if it's not because of a government intervention, like suddenly I don't get a shot, but it's among people who are supposed to be right. yeah. the kind of progressive, you know, people. And nevertheless, it's like I felt personally, me personally, this sense of being so unwelcome, you know, the moment I leave my lane, I'm perfectly fine. The moment I'm talking, if I'm talking about diverse stuff, we've got the diversity expert with us, but the moment I'm talking about something else, you're no longer welcome. And I felt that most in places like this, in California, in very progressive territory, I think that says a lot. I think it's also part of the reality of where, where many times, even when you have a very diverse workforce, the general workforce is very diverse. When you have a company whose product is very diverse, even in those cases, many times you'll have a leadership that is not. Correct. 
think of Univision as a perfect example of that, right? Like how many Latino CEOs has that company actually had? It was the last time they actually had one. I one, think one. Right. And what was and long, how long ago was that? Like 15 years ago, 20 years it, ago. Exactly, right? And that's and it's it's tough without and not once again, we're not getting a situation now where the, you know, if you're a Latino focused company, that the CEO has to be Latino. Of course not. I'm not advocating for that. But you can see how this yeah, just but give starts me a break. To can you have one can you have one in, in a decade? Right. That's, give me, that's, give me the, one. that's the point. That's yeah. the point. All right. So we but gotta move, move on. on. By the way, Gavin Newsom, great hair, if if uh, anybody was wondering. All right, so let let's see. Next topic. Um Latinx. Oh, we finally get to talk about this, Jesus. Latinx. You've been wanting to talk about this one for a while. We've talked about it a couple times just as a sideline, but it just happened that there was a very recent, a couple days ago, a very recent article um, from NPR, as a matter of fact, um, about the term Latinx. For those of you who have not heard that, anybody listening to this podcast, I'm sure, has heard of the term Latinx. But just in case you've uh, recommended this podcast to your cousin or something, Latinx is a term that uh, rose to prominence probably in, you know, 15, 16. I actually believe very honestly and with sincerity that the last company that Jesus and I were running, um, along with other people, obviously, a company called Me Too, uh, was very large part of the resurgence of that term, to be honest, at least in the marketing sphere and, and, and everything I mean, else. It was definitely very much embraced and, and pushed out from a content standpoint. Very consistently. So I, I, I agree with you with that. 100%. Played a but role, it, at least. We, we can I say mean, that. it obviously started much earlier, but there was there was this kind of 2004-05 creation of the term, and then it, nobody used it. And then all of a sudden, in 2015 and 16, it came back into prominence. Um, and anyway, so, but according to this recent NPR um, uh, article, which cited a Pew Research study, the fact that it was just basically making a claim that the term doesn't seem to have caught on because only 3% of Latinos who were who were surveyed for this say that they use the term. And when it's used, it's mostly used among young people. In fact, there's a great amount of people who don't even know what the term even means. Right. Only 23% of Latinos, 18 plus in the U.S., have even heard of the term Latinx, right? And of those, uh, not of those, I'm sorry, overall 3%. Actually, use it. it. It it is such a really such an interesting topic because, I would say, especially in the marketing world, a world that you and I are very involved in, it is a very common thing to hear. Right, marketing media is many folks talk about Atlantics. I I hear it all the time. All the time. Um, you hear from agencies talking about it. You especially hear it from folks that are not Latino. And in a matter of trying to be very respectful, which I, I could appreciate that, but it, it is very widely used. But yet, when you look at the actual population and how they see themselves, how they want to use this kind of term, they, they just don't, right? And what's even more interesting is when you look at, to your point about the younger generation, so even with amongst 1829, uh, 42% have actually heard the term, so less than half, and only 7% actually use the term. So of, of the people who've heard it, only like a fifth Use it. it. It is, yeah. So it, it is. It is, and honestly, I don't. I don't understand it because this kind of goes back to the whole comment of when you live in your bubbles, you that, sort was, of think that everyone is in the same bubble as you are. This is a great example of that. If if I was to, without looking at this Pew data, if you were to ask me what percentage that I think eighteen to twenty nine year old Latinos in the U.S. will will, con- will have a heard of it or use the term, I would have thought it was a like heard of it ninety percent. Use used it, it, maybe 40%. 40. Yeah, maybe yeah. 40%, I would say that. Yeah. Maybe not 100, because I know that some people That's have funny. issues with it. Maybe it 40%, but it's, 
it's such a drastic under usage of it. And it's, look, it, it, I would say that is the highest percentage, 1829 overall, amongst between men and women, you do see pretty big dis- distinction there. Women use it, um, have, heard about, have heard about it about the same 24 to 22%, women more than men. And then in usage, women use it, about 5% of women use the, the term Latinx, and only about 1% of men use the term Latinx. So I could see, and even that I was shocked by it because I would say, look, I, I could get it from a perspective. If you're a woman, Latina, and the fact that when we refer to the, to to a group of Latinos, we use we use the 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 male version of, of the term because that's the way that it's said in Spanish, right? So I can understand from someone that may feel excluded from that, especially think about it as a woman that would say, I feel more comfortable. Like, why does that have to be the male version? Or why can't we just say Latinx so that it can mean to, to either either group, either male or female, but even amongst that group, only about 5% use it. And, and Honestly, I don't know what to think. I definitely want to know your thoughts on it. Happens. I think you know mine. But um, I, I, I think that um, this also falls into the category of things that are discreetly American Latino things. Because I think if you go to Panama or Ecuador or Colombia and you talk about Latinx or whatever, people are going to look at you like you're insane. And that's because, for the most part, there's a clear understanding that languages have genders, right? English doesn't have a gender, which is yeah, what, what makes it, it does, yeah. right. What makes it tricky is in English, where we're talking about things, and there's you know basically the language is sort of neuter. But in Spanish, things have gender, right? So you would say, you know, coffee is el café. It's masculine, where something like you know agua, right? La agua is feminine. That doesn't mean that the that there's an inherent benefit to either masculine or feminine. It's just that the language has that gender built into it. And, and the default for plural is always the the male version of the of, of the word. Or when it applies to people too, right? Even the word human, right? If you were to use the plural humanos, you wouldn't say humanas. You would say humanos, right? So it's like, but it in, it incorporates. It's saying humans. Right. The 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 word humans translates to a gendered masculine noun in Spanish because that's the way the language is constructed. So this is decidedly an American Latino thing. That's, that's I think, number one. I, I definitely want to give my, my perspective, but I actually want to hear yours first. I want to hear what your thoughts are on, on, on this, A, I guess, the term, and then B, not catching on. Uh, I think on the term, right? So th- th- maybe we, we should talk a little bit about the why, why that has come up. And we're kind of already touching on it a little bit. First of all, I think for those that may listen to this and are not as familiar with what what the, diff- the difference between Latino versus Hispanic and, and both terms are used quite a bit, right? So Hispanic tends to be used for anyone that is uh, tied to the to the language of Spanish, right? Uh, and more obviously tied to to Spain in the, in this case. In the case of Latino, it's really more tied to anyone that is has roots out of Latin America. So someone like from Brazil, a g- great example, who would speak Portuguese would not be considered Hispanic, but would be considered Latino. And I do think that while for a long time Hispanic was almost like the default way to uh, sort of uh, identify a group of, of, of folks that were, uh, you know, that were that had roots out of, out of Latin America, um, I, I feel like the term Latino has definitely taken hold and has seemed to have taken over. Um, and that's basically the more predominant sort of usage of, 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 a, of a phrase of how to describe this group. Now, so the history here um, is really more tied to, you know, I think what some communities feel that has been a discrimination against them, right? Whether it's women, whether it's LGBTQ, maybe even Afro-Latinx uh, folks. 
And it's almost like a way to counter that 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 argument that it has to be the male version of the word that sort of is all-encompassing that doesn't quite reflect these other folks that don't directly see themselves in that term. So when I when I first heard, honestly, when I first heard the term Latinx, I didn't know what it meant. I had to like look it up. Well, I'm you like, didn't know how to pronounce it either. It, it, I didn't know how to did pronounce I. it. I didn't know what it meant. Latinx? I, I Latinx? was more confused, not offended by any means, but I'm because I am in no way a purist as it relates to the language. It was way more to do that. I just didn't understand what it meant. And, but once I understood the why and how in some cases some people may feel like they are being excluded from the term, that it doesn't fully reflect them, well, it doesn't come natural to me, right? I will never call myself Latinx. I call myself a Latino. But at the same time, it actually doesn't bother me at all. Like this is one of those terms yeah. where this is like, one, you know, there's certain fights that I'm willing to fight and sort of stand on principle. This is honestly just not one of them. And which is part of the reason why it surprised me so much, why... Some people, A, have not heard of it, or B, just like will never use the term. I may fall into the camp where I myself, for myself, I would say Latino, but I find myself saying Latinx when I refer to a group, when yeah. I refer to a group of more than, when it includes and I, male and, and women. And I think that's an appropriate usage of it. I also, and maybe, you know, folks might be surprised by this, I actually have no problem with the term at all. If, but I am more of a purist about these things, right? And again, you have numbers and other people have numbers and words. I just have words, okay? So for me, like, I take language very seriously. And I think that, you know, it's important to understand what things mean. And then if you want to make them mean something else or you believe that it does, that's up to you. But, but words do actually have a meaning. And you've already touched on some of this, right? The word Hispanic literally refers to the Spanish language, right? So Mexicans and Spaniards and Cubans are all Hispanic. Right. So we have that in common because they share a tongue. The tongue is Spanish, right? Latino is about a geography, not a language. So you've already touched on that. And the term Latinx, if, if by that you mean men and women, I'm great with that. But to me, where I kind of like, where, where I get cringy is where somebody says something like, you know, um, you know, we, we're going to have a panel of Latinx women. It's like, well, those are just Latinas. Like, to me, it'd be like Latinas, right? That's how I would exp express that. It, because I believe that that's, that the X as a kind of replacement for, you know, it could be either masculine or feminine makes sense to me and includes more people. But the, the idea of if you're talking about a group of women, there is already a name for that. It's called Latina. And I realize that there's a small minority of people who may be female, who don't identify with being female. And right. I understand that. And I'm sensitive to that on an individual basis, but I think that having these sort of like broad terminologies that impact the language for everyone, it's kind of a tough thing to govern against the individual sort of exceptions. Yeah, no, I could see that. And I would probably do the same as you, which my default would just say Latina. But I could also see the perspective of an individual in that group who is maybe a woman but doesn't see themselves who's more in that spectrum, who doesn't necessarily completely see themselves in that, in that gender, may have an issue with it. I'm a lot less, I guess I'm a lot less uh, traditional about the language simply because I don't, while I do think the language matters to retaining culture, I don't think it's all encompassing, right? And look, I'll give you a, a really random story just because we're having this kind of podcast today. But um, I would say maybe it was my, so as you know, Charlie and I actually spent a number of years at Univision. I, I was there for about nine years. And for a long time, I was working with uh, the radio division of, of the group. And I remember going to, and we spent a lot of time going to different markets and having, having strategy sessions 
there was one specific market that we went to to do a strategy session. As part of a strategy session, we were trying to get an outcome of actually changing the format of one of the stations. And it was controversial in the sense that we're going to take a Spanish format. It might have been regional Mexican. I forgot what the format was. And change it to a, more of a bilingual, maybe more English-dominant format um, for that station. And I remember having this, this strategy session where we started to introduce this concept that, hey, it may actually make more sense for this community that we're trying to address to have an actual more English-first presentation of the content, different music, different hosts, et cetera. And I remember one person standing up very, to their credit, like very brave because you're, you're talking to the executive team of the group, the sure. C, you know, basically yeah. the president of the mm-hmm. division, all of the senior leadership. And she was like, no, we should not do that. Our job is to support and to grow the Spanish language. So why will we ever change any of our stations away from Spanish? And then we all kind of looked at them like, no, time out. That is not our job at all. Our job is to engage Latinos. We're a company where we're focused on talking to Latino audiences. That's our primary focus. That in no way means that our job is to only do it in Spanish. Only if it makes sense and only when it makes sense, absolutely, that's the language that we should be communicating in. But when it doesn't make sense, when this audience is want to go younger, sure. when they're communicating more in English, then that's what we should be doing. So I've always kind of thought of the Spanish language that way, why I am, I am respectful of the Spanish language. I am bilingual, like I read it, write it, et cetera. I'm also not so traditional about that. It has to live up to the same kind of rules because when we're speaking to, to your point, this is not a Latin American conversation. This no. is a U.S. conversation. Yes. And to a U.S. conversation, some of the words that we use and choose to use or how we define ourselves are going to be different. And by the way, words that don't necessarily make sense as much to the Spanish, to more Spanish people or folks that are actually are from Latin America. I think of the word Chicano that was very popular back in the 70s, 70s and, and 80s, 80s, right? And that by itself, that word had a massive sort of change from what it originally meant. It was usually originally used as a very derogatory term. It was sort of retaken back, given a very different context of what it was. So I think language, I think that happens with language and how people identify themselves. So that's why it actually doesn't bother me that much. But it surprises me so much that how little is actually, you know, gained traction amongst the broader community. Yeah, I'm definitely more, and I understand everything that you said. Um, I, I definitely am more of the mind that, you know, in order for us to have a conversation or be able to actually exchange ideas about something, we have to agree on the lexicon we're using means something. It's like, I mean, on some level, it is kind of like mathematics in the sense that if you write out an equation, we have to agree with the values of the things that we're writing out, right? And if so, like if I say one thing and you believe it means something else, then we're not going to be able to actually have a conversation. I realize that it's unrealistic to be 100% like that, because words do evolve in meaning just over 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 time. And, and new words come up. That get and new words come up all the time. Yeah, I get it. I get it as well. And I think it's it, the the challenge here is I think you know I've even explained to people even before Latinx grew in in uh, popularity to the extent it's popular, which doesn't seem to be very popular at all. Right. But um, even you know early Univision days, I remember having meetings with people and having to explain to them the difference between Hispanic and Latino. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Chicano occasionally. So like now we have another term which has very little adoption that we now have to add into the vernacular. And I can't tell you how many times in the middle of an, in the beginning of an engagement, I've been asked that question. And I always am so appreciative when people ask me that question because I know it takes courage to do it. It's kind of the dumb question to ask, but they ask it anyway. And I really appreciate that when they say, what the hell do I use? Right. And I think in certain cases, having all of this variety of terminology, which means 
To me, it means something. I think I can make a very strong case of why it means something, but maybe people would disagree with my interpretation. All it does is confuse people. And I think that that's, that's, that's not a good thing when we're trying to advance a proposition. So, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not against it. I'm okay with it. I think it's fine. But I also would be perfectly fine if it died on the vine too. You well, know what I mean? I mean, the indicator is more that it's going to die on the vine than it's, that it's taking hold because now it's been around for a little while. And looking at the data set, once again, from Pew, the, the one that also stands out to me is that when you look at even by language, English-dominant Latinos, what you would think would be the ones that are going to be more sure. attuned to actually embracing yeah. this term because they're probably less traditional about Spanish language. Even for them, less than 30% have, have heard of it and only 3% of them have actually used it. So, like, I, I, and honestly, like, I scratch my, my head on this one. And of that, only why. 2% know how to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, I think it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, I, I don't understand why, because I, I actually think that even as you think about the number of words that we've, as Latinos in the U.S. or Latinx people, however you want to look at it, have actually come up with, created, mm-hmm. right, that have taken complete hold. I think I always think of the word parquear when you oh, tell yeah. someone. It, it means nothing, first of all, but it, it means park, but it's like a it, well, it bastardized it version of park. It doesn't really mean that. Uh, yeah. But I, but yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of an anglicized and, version. Right. Yeah. And, and, but people use it all the time. And you tell people, and it could be Spanish dominant, and it's, people get it. I mean, like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're going to park your car. I, I get it. Even though the it real word is estacionar. completely wrong in Spanish. Completely yeah. wrong. It's, estacionar is the word. Estacionar is the right word. Correct. But yet that word, somehow yeah. it figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> somehow it created it's funny because, this new category, you know, like... That and that's kind of like the, the the sort of Spanglish, right? I remember when I, I, I spent my high school years and college years in South Florida, and there's a huge Cuban community down there. And I remember one time, you know, kind of early uh, early high school kind of days, or maybe it was even college, but I pulled over to the side of the road to ask somebody for directions. This is, this is before, you know, you could just kind of map on your phone, you, before you could waze. And uh, I asked the guy, you know, at the little coffee shop, like how to get to someplace. And he was like, Chico, lo que tiene que hacer, tiene que hacer un right-hand turn. Pero tiene que hacerle watch out porque viene la troca. And I was like, viene la troca? What is that? I'm like, the truck is <laughs> coming, right? I'm like, what are you talking about? But it, it, but you're right. Like these you're things right. kind of change and evolve yeah. uh, over time. I just, you know, again, my, my hope is I'm trying to, what I want to do is help aid in comprehension and conversation. And I want people to feel comfortable about things and in some cases, the whole idea of Latinx feels like an unnecessary obstacle to get people to understand that this is an important audience, an important consumer group, an important you know group of a commu- important community to get to know. It just seems like an unnecessary thing, and it doesn't seem like it's actually very popular. So I'd be perfectly fine for it to go away. All let's right, move on. Let's move on. So um, next topic on the docket is all about. Uh, oh yeah, this is about our friends at uh, Glassdoor, right? Mm-hmm. So Glassdoor is a website, for those of you who haven't heard, that basically encourages current and former employees to offer candid assessments of their workplace and share salary information anonymously, right? Um, this is one that has been around. I'm, sure, I'm actually not sure how long it's been around. Um, I've been familiar with this site now for years. I don't know, maybe five plus years. Um but it, but it's one that I think a lot of a lot of employees uh, do a lot of people do use right yeah. and I think especially when you think about what has been what has occurred in the workforce over the last ten years maybe beyond that right which is I'm going to go a little bit to on a tangent for a second but but I think it's important here is that 
you know, historically, when you thought about people coming into the workforce, it was very much expected that folks will come into one job, stay in that one job, try to grow in their careers. And it was almost frowned upon if they somehow left before a five, five-year mark. Right? Yeah. And it was like, oh, you're jumping around. It was something that was, when I first started my career, oh, it was for very sure. frowned upon. For sure. If you went into a business and only stayed a couple of years and then left one somewhere else, like, oh, so you can't commit. That's, that, that, that changed in our in our career, oh, in our sure, lifetime, for sure. It, it has. And I think over the last, ten, I would say over the last 10 years, give or take, maybe a little more than that, it has dramatically, dramatically. changed. Dramatically. And I think- Where part, would you say the line is now? It, like a couple of years, right? Maybe I, even, I don't even know if it's a couple of years, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be. I think it's it's such a, a different situation. And I think part of which is what I'm getting at here is that part of that change, I think, really came from the fact that people's attitudes, individuals' attitudes towards the well, the kind of relationship they were going to have with their company really changed. And the fact that it really felt it needed to be a two-way street. This is not just about me doing everything for my company, but what is my company doing for me? And it's a, it's a, I think it started with the millennial generation is my is my sense as to what actually sure. created that, that 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 switch. One hundred percent. And it was very much like, hey, listen, we all have options. You have op- You can fire me, or I could also just leave. So if we don't find a nice balancing out here pretty quickly, then we're gonna go a different direction. So you saw offerings like Glassdoor come out, where really was they're really more built to empower, to give more information well, to those employees that are looking for. Basically, more ways to figure out is this the right fit for me? And exactly. also, it's a way to kind of give it back to those companies that maybe neglected some of their employees in that process. It was just a way to find out to go beyond the interview and see what's really going on, kind of like lift up the hood and go, wait a minute, this guy's telling me that this is a great company to work at, but what's really going on? And All I right. think that's the thing that it provides is candid, obviously, it's anonymous assessment from people about the culture, about the place, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's that's the idea, anyway. Right. And and it could be brutal, by the way. Oh, it, it can, can be. be very brutal. When it you look at some be. of those reviews, you know, similar to Yelp, you know, you get the wrong person. Sure. Uh, and, and it's 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 tough because it is, you know, this now goes into into the category of reputation management, right? Is that you have to be conscious about what people are saying about you mm-hmm. in a place like Glassdoor, and it does matter. I think people are looking at that as a as a as a data point to decide whether or not to take on roles there. They, it's definitely a tool that employees that feel in any way like they've been you know, shafted in the process to sort of kind of give it back to that company. But what, what sort of made news about this recently is that Glassdoor now has launched or is launching a new rating system to basically hold companies accountable on diversity and inclusion. Right. The idea here is that the new rating will enable current and past employees to anonymously score employers on how well they're doing on diversity uh, and inclusion upon a five-point scale. So think about Yelp before diversity and inclusion, but now obviously for businesses. So a, di- a little bit different angle than when we talked about in the very first one, right, as it relates to sure. the board and, and having, you know, creating, rest- you know, creating policy there in terms of how many people, you know, you need to have there. But it is definitely going into this sort of arena of checks and balances and and keeping companies honest. At the same time, I you know, and to keep this in, in uh, you know, per our tradition, I'm guessing that when you first heard this one, Charlie, it also maybe made you cringe a little bit. Well, I think the first thing that I, that I thought about was a, a number of questions, right? We, they talked about a new rating system, and my first thought is built by whom, right? Who's building this new rating system? What are they measuring, right? And they talk about holding companies accountable on diversity. Well, who defines what diversity even means, right? Is it all about just representation? I thought about Google um, with their um, Google Maps update where they made uh, it possible for consumers to surface black-owned businesses, 
would that have counted under the diversity thing, even if somebody white worked on that product? Right. So to me, it brought up just a whole host of questions. I think the idea of Glassdoor as this kind of anonymous, um, you know, platform where you can tell the really inside scoop on what's going on someplace. Look, I think that's fine. I definitely think it's most people who are going into a new job are going to check it out and see if there's any flags that come up there. But when I hear about these kind of new rating systems that have been developed, I want to know what the heck it is. And what's clear to me also is that it leaves diversity of thought and opinion completely out of this equation. So by everything that I read, at least. So it, it, it could end up with having, you know, 100 people inside of a company that all look different, but all think identically. And to me, it's like, that's not sure. diversity. So maybe to unpack a little bit of the questions you just raised. One is who comes up with the scale? What does the scale mean? There isn't really, I mean, look, the, I think the, 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 the thing that makes it kind of interesting in their approach is very much the same challenge that any kind of rating system for businesses at scale tend to have, right? You think about Yelp, or it's not about who came up with the scale, it's that what the scale is sure. and how people interpret what that scale is. And what's being measured. And the interpretation is, is at the individual level, yeah. but it becomes more and more interesting at scale. So the second that I put in a one through five scale about diversity and inclusion... One of the challenges is that, well, what my definition of diversity and inclusion is versus your definition may be very different. But the more and more it happens, the more and more people go and rate things, the more it actually starts to hold actual value, right? Because in the same way of Yelp, going to a four and a half star restaurant versus a three and a half star restaurant or two and a half star restaurant, part of it is very is very subjective in terms of what do I consider a four star restaurant versus what someone else will will. But the more it happens, the more people do it, all of a sudden it becomes currency. A currency. And that currency is relative to each other. Yeah. And I do feel that the more volume you, you have, the actual more legitimate it becomes, even if the interpretation at the individual level may actually vary. I have no doubt about that at all. I think that's exactly how it will work. It'll be like somebody will have four stars and somebody will have 4.2 and they won't even care as long as it's got more than four. I think it'll be like more diverse by its very nature. But again, my questions are always about how are we constituting this and what is it that we're actually trying to advance? I think that it could be very noble or it could be short-sighted. And, you know, I don't know enough about these kind of rating scales. I thought about it this way, though. If we were to have consulted Glassdoor, we might have chosen the same vehicle, meaning, hey, you need to develop a new product around diversity and let your population rate diversity. And right. that seems right up the alley of the kind of thing we'd recommend. But I believe that the way that we would have recommended it would be something that's broader, that has, you know, uh, uh, you know different sets of kind of, of KPIs, if you will. This seems very much oriented around, um, you know, representation, which, again, I think is great. But it leaves the kind of full potential of using diversity to, de to develop new businesses and new opportunities out of the equation, at least by what I've read. And so to me, I think that that's what makes it a little bit short-sighted. I think it's fine. I think it'll continue and, and maybe it'll even help people make decisions on where to work. I just think that it, uh, it's, it's fairly arbitrary of how they're setting some of their definitions up. Yeah. I you know, what, what, I, what I see, by the way, just to kind of tie it back to what we just talked about a little, little while ago is we were just talking about this, the Instagram account, True Colors, right? Uh, and when I mentioned that a company like, was it CNN that I mentioned? CNN at 93% white. Is that white men? Does that include women? 
does that what if you know half of the half of the, that staff is actually LGBTQs? Does that not make them diverse anymore? What, you, you see what I'm saying? Like so, there's so many different ways to sort of segment that out. And this number doesn't at all nuance any of those things. So I, I get your point. I mean, it becomes a little challenging when you look at it that way. I, I do think it's kind of an interesting and probably logical next step in this movement that is happening currently about making companies more accountable for the diversity efforts that they claim to support, right? So if you go out and you put your black square, if you go out and you say, hey, black lives matter, and even say, I'm going to invest X amount of dollars to, against these causes. But internally, you're not creating an environment to actually help people feel included, to encourage diversity, to have the mentorship programs, to have the training, to do the recruiting, do all the things that are required to have a much more balanced workforce. Then I think people are going to call you out. And I think tools like this are going to be used exactly to do that. Uh, and this is the part where, you know, once again, we, when we've discussed before, I think you could look at the forces that are going to create the change sort of twofold. There is government, there's policy, there is legalities, right? A little bit of what we started the conversation with the, with the order from Gavin Newsom. And then there is consumers and employees. This definitely falls squarely in the consumers and employees, but it is definitely a tool that I think will make an impact on how people think about themselves, how they govern themselves, how they operate, that should hopefully have a, a, a more positive outcome, even if, to your point, the tool that's being used may not be the best tool for it. Maybe a little more of a blunt ob object to actually make the change, yeah, but that's I think what it can create change. That's what it feels like. I mean, I would love to see you know the KPIs here be things like succession planning, mentorship, things like that. Not it's just like, oh, they don't have certain people here, therefore I get dinged. I just feel that that ultimately may be true and it may be wrong, but it doesn't really lead us anywhere. And so I'd like to see more of the kinds of, you know, KPIs and frankly, maybe even, you know, when you join a board, have that be part of the equation that you are going to mentor someone, that you're going to go, you know, try to source someone to succeed you from one of these communities that I think is real, tangible, like an individual doing something. Well, well, Some know, of this stuff just you feels know what's like interesting, though. And you know, thinking about this is that what are all the negative outcomes that could come from this, right? Because if you start to then operate your company just to get better scores, sure, what's well, it may may actually mean you don't have mentorship programs, you don't have the succession plan, because the reality, the people that are actually doing these reviews are your general population of of employees. So as long as you make it look like, feel like to that level of, of folks that you have the right level of intent and programs, et cetera, you may not have to actually create the opportunity that you need, that you, that you, sure. that you really should be creating. Yeah. So that's the possible downside of doing this. But yeah, I, think about it this way. If like, if you had a staff that was, let's just say it's a hundred people and 40 of those people were black, African-American, but your churn rate among those 40 people was 10 times the churn of your other populations. But you would satisfy this Glassdoor survey. Like you're great in the Glassdoor because you got 40% of your staff, even though you're cycling through these folks because you're not mentoring them, because you're not really investing in them, because you're not really trying to understand who they are. Right. And that's where I feel that some of this stuff can incent bad behavior or, or can lead us to bad, bad, bad outcomes. Yeah, and I think the way that that gets then balanced is that, and you hope that the, the responses that you get to the ratings of those companies comes from both those diverse employees and also non-diverse employees. And in that, hopefully some of those folks that maybe are feeling like they're being churned and not create opportunities for themselves 
are also active in, in creating the, you know, the scoring. And I think that then gives you a much more balanced and, and better, hopefully, score of, of what, how the company or what that company is actually doing. 100%. Okay, so let's move to our kind of speed round here. We've got some news from our friends at Uber, Ben & Jerry's, and EA Sports. All of them made some pretty bold moves, at least as it relates to diversity, specifically uh, Uber launched a new ad campaign, which the headline was, if you tolerate racism, delete Uber. EA Sports um, launched an effort called Bring Kaepernick Back. And Ben and Jerry has introduced a new podcast, actually a new podcast series, it's a limited series, that tackles, in their words, America's long history of racial violence and discrimination. So these all happened in the last you know, uh, two weeks, basically. And uh, I've got thoughts on all three, but let's take them kind of one at a time. First, let's talk about Uber and their campaign, mostly from what I saw, kind of a messaging effort. I don't know that there's a product piece to this, but it's really about billboards and that kind of stuff. And again, the tagline was, if you tolerate racism, delete Uber. Thoughts? I love it, honestly. I love it. I, I love it for a whole set of reasons. Um, I, I love the the sort of the sub tagline that says black people have the right to move without fear. Now, if, if you think about some of the challenges that have been reported, and especially when you hear black people explain their their experience in dealing with any kind of public transportation, taxis, Ubers, et cetera, I've heard it plenty of times, and myself, I cannot, I haven't had that experience, but the whole notion of getting passed over, feeling like like you're just not being serviced the same way other people would be serviced, I think it's extremely unfair. And 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 the this notion of actually taking an anti-racism approach, that I think sort of goes to the point of actually trying to drive change. Uh, now, I, look, I recognize it's a marketing campaign. Let's be perfectly honest. No, they do have some additional elements to that campaign, but it starts with a marketing campaign, which is all about public awareness. But I like the, initial, the, the immediate stance of saying we're not only going to be supportive of these efforts, but we're going to try to do our best in the platform that we have and in the context where we could actually influence to, to, have, to, take, to take real steps of being anti-racist. And to the degree that someone is racist, then they don't belong in our platform. They don't belong in our in our business, and I I think it's, it actually speaks a lot to what they're trying to do. I mean, I don't know what the stats are for even employees or or drivers of Uber. How many of those are African American or black or diverse for that matter? But I gotta believe if it, it probably feels pretty good to hear that your parent company is taking that kind of very public very, to some extent, proactive stance at actually trying to be anti-racist. I think there's a maybe a difference between what you just described, which are all of the things that have happened historically that should be addressed, and what Uber chose to actually make their campaign say, because I think those are different things, right? What was actually said was, if you tolerate racism, delete Uber. Now, all of the reasons that you mentioned could are all true and are very noble and correct, but I think what they ended up with is a remarkably banal and stupid campaign. I mean, I absolutely think it's horrible. And what it basically says is, if you're racist, delete, delete Uber. The, the thing with marketing is that in order for it to be good, it has to risk something. This campaign risks nothing, right? It's if you're racist, delete Uber. Well, of course, who doesn't agree with that, right? I think it's very, basically PR. I think it falls into the category of all talk and nothing meaningful. I feel it's like grandstanding. It's all about virtue signaling. I think that it's it doesn't address the very real issues that you talked about. I think there's a number of different ways that you could you could address the things that you said. 
But to me, what I come across is a company saying, we're not racist because we're saying this. And the, and the words that they're choosing to say or how they're ch- actually choosing to, to represent that is, is such a low-risk thing, this idea of if you're racist, elite us. The, peop- the number of people who would raise their hand and identify themselves as racist, I mean, think about this. Even, and I'm a, I'm, I know that there's a number of people, obviously, in the country, you know, who are, but the people who would like, literally raise their hand and say, I'm a racist, is vanishingly small. So I, f- I feel like this campaign, again, risks nothing. It's just literally saying, hey, guys, we're on your side, and look, how, look at the steps that we're taking. I kind of wrote myself a note that this is, I can see people who put sweaters on their dogs doing this campaign. This is, <laughs> this is, this is definitely in that category. It, it's just, it's so banal and it's so uh, weak. That's so funny. And it's just, it just, but, it really doesn't at yeah, all let, let, get to fine. the level. Let, let me push back on that. So one is that on the actual campaign itself, right? You're, you're right. For someone to publicly go out and say, I'm racist is probably a very small percentage of people because most racist people don't say they're racist, right? So let's start with that. I think people that are against this message, as, as because this is a very markety kind of message, you're right. But I can guarantee you, people are going to look at that and are going to get offended. This, even on the notion that black people should be able to, free, to move freely, that or move without fear, I'm sorry, is the, is the right, is the black people have the right to move without fear. That's going to offend some, some, some folks. This is, this is going to be the same, well, all people should have the right to move without fear. Yes, you're right. All people should have the right to move without fear, but not all people deal with this issue of being able to move around and being uh, restricted by their by the color of their, of their skin. So, those folks that that immediately f- get offended by that, and by the way, the second you put this out, you have to understand that there's going to be a group that even if they consider them not to be racist, are are not are not going to want to support Uber because of that. And if they're doing that, knowing that, and still take that stance, I respect that. I think, th- or, or, by the way, because if you don't realize that people are going to have that kind of response, then you're being naive. By saying that, oh yeah, just this very small group that is actually racist, I actually, and they're the only ones that are going to be like impacted. And when we look at a percentage of our possible consumer base, that represents you know less than two percent. So we're fine. No, no, no. This is going to be a much bigger chunk, is, and these are the, the all all lives matter chunk of people that are going to have that mm, kind of response. I'm not sure about that. And the I, second part about yeah, this, yeah, go which ahead. I think is important, is that. This is also tied to Uber previous commitment of giving $10 million to support black-owned businesses, a million to equal justice initiatives, zero delivery fee for black-owned businesses, and doubling supplier spend with black-owned businesses. So, yes, it is a marketing campaign. I think part of the thing that you and I have always agreed on, that if all you're doing is having a marketing campaign and snazzy creative, but not doing anything else on the other side, then that's a problem. And I think at least in this case, I feel like, if you're doing this and, A, don't realize that they're going to have a much bigger backlash than what you're actually going to are, then you're being naive. But if you do realize it and still do it, then I respect that. I think it's good. I, I, yeah. I mean, I disagree with the greater backlash because I think even people who are racist would not, in many cases, don't raise their hand and say that I'm racist, therefore I'm deleting the app or something like that. I feel like it's, you could replace racism with arson or other crimes and say, if you're an arsonist, delete Uber. Again, to me, it risks nothing because no one would disagree, including the racists who may not classify themselves in that category. So to me, it's just so banal. It, it, it's, it's the kind of thing that just says, look at me, I'm doing something about this, which by the way, is different than the other couple of cases, in my opinion, that we're going to look at right now, Ben and Jerry's and EA Sports. But this one, again, the sentiment, 
the intent of what they're trying to do, fine, but wrapping it up in if you tolerate racism, delete Uber is, in my opinion, super lame, risks nothing, and you could replace racism with arson or bank robbery or anything else. It's like, if you rob banks, delete Uber. Okay, yeah, yeah I agree with you, I, and I, everybody I think, does. I think this one we just and who cares? I do think that the this, to me, is going to have a very negative reaction to the All Lives Matter group. People that are, and we're not talking about the organization Black Lives Matter, but the sentiment that Black Lives Matter, the anti-sentiment of Black Lives Matter, I think will have an issue with the messaging. And maybe they can ignore the first part, but that second piece, which I think is super important, um, I feel like they will react to it. And look, maybe you're right. Maybe this is, look, we've, we've, we have seen plenty of perfect examples of just marketing messages that completely missed the, part, you know, missed the point, that doesn't risk getting to, to your point. I think it does more, and once again, if they think if they if they don't think that you're going to get a bigger reaction, then I think they're being naive about it. All right, so let's move on then. Talk about EA Sports and their campaign of bringing Kaepernick back, and this one is basically a, um, I mean, effectively bringing Colin Kaepernick into the virtual game experience of NFL Madden. Yeah, right? Madden Twenty One. Yeah, of Madden Twenty One, so that for the first time ever, you as a player of Madden Twenty One can actually select Kaepernick to actually be on the team and play. Um, you know, and and so basically participate in the actual game experience. So your thoughts? I, g- I give you mine first. Last time, what what do you think? Wait, you did? I think, what yeah, I think I did. Um, I actually think that in this particular case, it's a legit effort. I think it's actually very cool marketing. I think it offers real value to consumers, meaning that I'm playing a game. I can bring in an athlete who's very much in the news, who has actual statistics, who has actual verifiable football skills that I can put to the, to the, to the test in my particular gameplay. So I think that it's a, it's, and it's definitely on brand for them. So I'm very happy about this. I think it's legitimate. I think it adds value to the consumer. I think it takes a little bit of a risk, which I talked about earlier that Uber did not. Um, So I'm actually happy with this. I do think that there's, in the article that I read, EA makes a statement about Colin Kaepernick being a starting quality QB, which now I'm thinking to myself, when has EA ever made a claim about anyone's capabilities as an athlete in the game doing anything, being a starter, being an all-star, being whatever? So there's some questions that I have about that, but the idea of it as a effort, as a campaign, to me makes sense. I think it's legit. I think it's cool marketing. I think it adds good value. I think it's very buzzy. People will talk about it. So I like it. So funny, we actually are a little bit different camps on this one. Um, when I saw this, the first thing that I thought about, it was like smart. Not risky because what they looked at, it was a Nike. And when they look at the demographics of EA Sports, who they're targeting and who Nike targets, it's going to be young males. And it makes a whole lot of sense. If they would have done this before Nike did it, I would have been, wow, very risky. That's a bold move to be doing this. I think at this moment, it's just smart marketing. I think it's smart marketing because they understand that their demographic, their core audience that they're actually talking to that is playing this game it's something nice to attach themselves to that does actually very, very little in my mind of actual change because they're going off of what Nike already did of showing that when you attach yourself in this moment to someone, a person like him, like Colin Kaepernick, it actually pays huge dividends for you. Even if the general public, those that are not your consumers are going to basically complain and talk about wanting to burn their Nikes, not to buy anymore. it doesn't matter. They're not your consumers. So from this st- standpoint, I think that 
It is like a it's smart. It's cool. I like it for a whole bunch of reasons. But I actually don't see it as risky. I think they looked at the playbook of Nike, like that was awesome. And they may have. It makes sense for us as well. Let's do it. And they're attaching themselves to the moment. You could you could look at this very skeptically, like, well, wait a minute, you're not really doing it because you really believe he's a starter, right? You're doing this because you know this moment matters so much, and you're doing this as a as a, as a way to be able to uh, as a way to be able to attach yourself to the moment. Knowing that you're not really risking that much because Nike already proved to you that by doing that, it actually increases your sales. So I have a much more skeptical view. I think it's cool as a, someone that actually plays NFL, uh, whatever, 20. Um, I think it's kind of a cool feature to do, but it has nothing to do with him being a great player. It has more to do with, of course, attaching himself to the social moment. You may be right. And, you know, with respect to him being a great player, so, and, you know, look, I, I don't have all the stats side by side other quarterbacks, but. EA specifically says, quote, Colin Kaepernick is one of the top free agents in football and a starting caliber quarterback. The team at EA Sports, along with millions of Madden NFL fans, want to see him back in our game. Now, that's a very definitive statement. I'm just, I'm curious from your standpoint, A, what you feel about them making that statement when, and maybe they have. I can't recall EA Sports making calls on who should start or not. Well, like, they, they rate all the players, right? So they have an actual, if you, if you want to talk about, talk about having some credibility of rating players, it's actually a very smart statement on their part because they're, they're, they're presenting this to you as a performance call when it's a political call. It's a social moment call. So I think it's actually extremely smart. One of the biggest things that players themselves, NFL players, look at is what is their EA rating? What what is their, their oh, Madden yeah, rating? Oh, that I know. Yeah, for right? sure. So everyone understands that this is like legitimate, yeah. you know, something that everyone cares about. So yeah. they and actually, a lot of them are not very happy about the rating that yeah, they have, sure as a matter of fact. So I, I actually think it's, it's genius how they're, they're presenting to you like if it was a pure football play, it's not. Mm-hmm. They present to you like it was really risky. It's not because they look at what Nike already did. Right. But I think it's the right entry point into doing this in a manner where it's aligned with the brand, it's justifiable for the brand, but it's low risk because they they, they understand that by doing this, even if they get heat from other people, the people that are going to give them heat are not their current consumer, right? If you get the you know 50 plus guy who never doesn't even know, calls them all still Nintendo, like that guy doesn't matter. That guy doesn't matter. Like the people that are playing the game are the people that they care about, that care about this kind of issue, that are going to love the fact that they can pick Colin Kaepernick. I wonder if Kaepernick feels the same way about this as he does about being in that NFL video a few weeks back, right? Which is like- I would would think probably not, not at all, right? Because in this case, it's not, the reason why Colin Kaepernick was so offended by what was happening is that you're having a league that has never actually talked to him directly, right? Especially with the commissioner that hasn't talked to him directly. And yet he was featured as part of this Opening ensemble of 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 images about how. So do you think EA Sports forward. has talked to him directly? I, I would, yeah, I think they would have to in this case. Mm. I, yeah, because of the, the 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 usage of his of his of his likeness, I think they would have to talk to him. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't, then they're gonna then it's a massive mistake by not doing. It. it made me think tangential to this. I know it's not related directly to EA Sports, but it did make me think about if Kaepernick came back, and he actually did get a chance to play in the NFL, and he was suddenly terrible. What would happen there? Like, would the coach be able to just bench him? Do you think somebody would be courageous enough to be able to bring him back and then just say, well, sorry, dude, I, I you're mean, just not good, I, I and sit him that, on a bench? Look, the, the tough thing with Colin Kaepernick is that he should have been in the league the last three years. Is it okay. Three, four, four years now, maybe. Four years, yeah. yeah but, four but, years but, uh, now. He should be in the league. Like, there is no reason why a guy with his talent should not be in the league. From going to saying that, being out of the league for three-plus years, going to four, to being a starting quarterback— with everyone else that has come into the league, that's been playing this and hurt, 
That's a that's a tough sell. That is honestly a very very tough sell. I think the only way in which he can play right now would be as a backup, and it probably would be now for the last couple of years. I mean, let's 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 not forget. Part of the reason why even when he was cut, he was already a backup then in San Francisco. He sure. already lost the starting sure. job before he even before the controversy sure. already happened. So, and that's it, my point. It's in, tough. With like, EA you're saying, not going to have him. As, that's why when I see this line about starting caliber, a starting caliber quarterback, look, uh, that I, I I think is a stretch. Yeah. Should he be a guy that should have been in the league? Should still be in the league now? Yeah, he should still be in the league. Right. But do you think now though? I mean, I'm just I'm just curious again. What's not part of the story? But if he were to be brought back and started, but let's just say it didn't work out, the coach being able to bench him without the fear of like the world coming down on top of him. Can you see how that might be I think it'll be very a tough. consideration? I, I think if you're someone that's going to bring him back, you've got to bring him in as a backup. Putting him in a starting position, A, I will really have to question that coach's mindset of bringing a guy in that hasn't played in three plus years to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. That's tough. You have to come in as a backup, probably at least a year, come in a couple of games because someone's injured and play really well before you're able to get that starting role. And if he does, which is great, I mean, the, the guy has real skills. I mean, that's of the course, that but there's actually, also real skilled quarterbacks backing up what a no, quarterback. No, for, for at, sure. That's what I'm saying. Know, like, Andy Dalton in Dallas. Potential to, yeah, maybe. Sure. But the NFL, it's a, it's a tough sport, man. Like, if you're not actually playing the game real time with other competitive folks, it's really, really hard to, to stay competitive. So I feel very strongly that he should have never been pushed out of the league the way that he has. He should have been in the league the entire time. But I do think it's a massive stretch to at this point, where well, he hasn't played for so long, to call him, to say that he's a starter caliber quarterback right now. Could he become that if he comes back to the league and then plays for a whole season and earns his way back up to it? Yeah, maybe. He's had the skill set. I mean, like the, the tools are all there. Yeah. Are, is the the sort of the sharpness still there? Is like yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't we, either. We need to know that. All right. So so far we disagree on both Uber and EA Sports. Let's talk. Let's go for three. <laughs> ben and Jerry's new podcast tackling America's long history of racial violence and discrimination. So this is actually a podcast series, right? And it's produced by Vox, right? Vox Media, six episode series. Vox Media is is called the Who We Are Project. Mm-hmm which is a chronicle of racism in America. And according to them, the way it's described is they're going to take a deep look at the country's lesser known history of racial injustice and show how legally enforced discrimination and state sanctioned brutality continued long after slavery ended, profoundly affecting black Americans, right? Everything from being able to access jobs, housing, education, healthcare, and creating and accumulating wealth. Now, a lot of this is not necessarily probably new information, some of them is very documented, like especially especially with the GI Bill and 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 even access to uh, to um, I'm blanking on the, the the loans for the homes for 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 new homeowners. I forgot what they were called. Um, but there's, I mean, some of the stuff has definitely been documented. It is really interesting, a brand like Ben and Jerry being involved in this. Having said that, one of the things that you think you and I talked about before, which is as it relates to when you see brands become all of a sudden socially active, uh, it could be a, a big miss if that brand is not. Like, that's not core to what they are. In the case of Ben and Jerry, in my opinion, it's not out of out of character for them. They're one that were both economic and social justice has been part of their DNA or part of their mission since being founded 42 years ago. As a matter of fact, I would say one, they were one of the brands who very early on, of all the brands that came out in response to social injustice, in response to what happened with George Floyd, they were really active right away, putting money uh, immediately against helping address some of the diversity issues that are, that are out there. 
and one that got a lot of kudos, frankly, of the work that they've always done. So it, it doesn't feel a lot of character for them. But uh, but I'm curious about your thought about this kind of series being co-produced by by this kind of brand. Yeah, I think this is 100% on brand. I think it totally makes sense for Ben & Jerry's. I think it's valuable IP for their consumers. In fact, it's kind of like sort of ho-hum for me. It's very little surprises, low on the risk factor because that's kind of what you expect from Ben & Jerry's. I think if they want to look at the issues in the black community and they want to look at history, and if they really wanted to do that, they could look at black history from a number of different angles, including ones that are not directly aligned to their kind of political stances. So to that, in that degree, I'm a little bit disappointed, but not surprised. But as Mark, you know, and I know it's not marketing in a strict sense, they actually want to make a contribution here. But as a contribution, because we're looking at all these things in the context of whether or not they're courageous or cringy, I think it's fine. I think it's completely on brand. I think people who love Ben and Jerry's will love them more. I think they people who their consumers are going to get some IP that maybe some intellectual property um, that maybe they didn't have before, and I think that that will help the brand and and strengthen the connection between the brand and its consumers. So, but which, which no part issue. are you disappointed with? I, I, didn't, I didn't catch that. I'm part. disappointed with if the if the purpose is to shape for Ben and Jerry's constituencies the idea of the black community and what the black community has been through, that they're going to look at the black community issues predictively from an only progressive lens. They're not going to look at the black community from other perspectives. It's going to be a very, oh, okay. very narrow perspective. But again, to me, not surprising at all, given who they are. So I, I think the, the, it's fine. I don't the, think the thing that is interesting about who they are, right? So Ben and Jerry is based in Vermont. Um, that's where their headquarters. They also have two manufacturing plants. The actual racial makeup of its workforce in in the state reflects that of a population of about 94 percent white. Wow! So, so when you think really about this logo. brand, yeah, exactly, right? So if you think about this brand that is very liberal, that is very pro addressing this diversity issues, and once again, they've gotten plenty of kudos. Sure. And they're loved by honestly by 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 fans of the brand and fans of the product. They are loved by them. And but is it really interesting that the actual population, the the workforce, is very is very white? Now, part of it could be also being, of course, based in Vermont. I don't know what the stats are in Vermont, to be honest. But <laughs> it's probably a little bit harder than you're based in uh, most of these companies, Watts, right? I mean, so yeah, but I, most I don't of know. most of these public companies are pretty fully distributed by this point. I mean, even if they have a corporate headquarters, they yeah. have people all over the place. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it is it's interesting. Now, it brings up an interesting question, though, right? Because again, are they allies for, for to, to progressive people? I would say sure they are, but yet they're so woefully inadequate in the area of representation. What does that mean? Does that way, undo and, all their yeah. stuff? And, and on that stuff, it, it, it is specifically referring to their head headquarters and their two manufacturing plants. Now, when you look at their workforce relative to their 600 retail location, that is much more closely aligned with the racial diversity in, in the U.S. So yeah, but, it could but, be a function of where they're actually placed. But we don't know if those are corporate or franchise. If they're franchise, then it's sure, not necessarily. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. So, but, but once again, I think in this case for Ben & Jerry, not that I'm making excuses for them, I just don't know, you know, depending on where they are, how much of that is actually tied to uh, having, you know, being headquartered in certain, certain places, right? By the way, which, which actually then speaks to this notion that one of the one of the, the pluses that has come about from living in this COVID moment mm -hmm. is that I think for many companies who were previously geographically constrained and limited to who they could hire, who they could bring on board uh, because they want to have everyone always in, the, in their HQs, 
what we are seeing more of it is openness from organization to actually being able to have remote workers, which actually opens up the spectrum and the type of employees you can bring on board, which I really do hope has a very positive effect and having a much more diverse workforce, especially for those companies that are just headquartered in, in areas of the country where it's just it's just not you don't have you know many diverse people living there. As a I know I know I just mentioned in terms of Ben and Jerry's what they you know my my one disappointment and just to kind of put a finer point on that to give you an example that's actually very contemporary there actually is a um, documentary film that's recently hit iTunes. It actually came out prior to that, but it's called Uncle Tom. It's got a very provocative name. And it's an oral history of the American black conservative. And it tracks basically historically voices, um, you know, all the way from back to Frederick Douglass um, to the modern day who have been, um, you know, conservative voices in the black community and their perspectives and their ideas and their stories. And so I think it's um, just to give a kind of fine point on the other perspectives that, that relate to um, black history that Ben & Jerry's is trying to accentuate, that's my sort of, you know, example of where perhaps it could have gone. I don't expect that to, you know, f- from them. And again, I have no problem with what they've done. I think it's exactly on brand um, and, it, and it adds a value to their consumers. But that's kind of to put a finer point on sort of where my disappointment um, was. All right, fair enough. All right, Jesus. So quite a show, hodgepodge. We covered a lot of different things. Fun show. Um, any last words, departing wisdom? You know, we, we cover quite a variety of, of topics here. I think the biggest thing that sort of my takeaway when I think about this is sort of the the need for leadership to really be proactive of thinking about how to address their workforce, how to create opportunities for diverse voices to actually help them be better companies. And the balancing act between if you don't do it yourself first, if you don't create the mechanism internally, then you're either going to end up being forced by consumers, by employees, and then potentially even government. And honestly, from those three, the last one is probably the one that you and I probably agree with that you'd rather not get to that point. Yeah. But unfortunately, sometimes it does need to happen in order to create the catalyst to actually make movement happen. Um, but but it is, I think we're living in a really interesting time of of really of accountability to some extent, of actually creating hopefully some real change. Now, not all of it is going to be perfect. Plenty of it is going to have plenty of negative side effects. So that, I think that's the thing to maybe to watch out for with all of this is that even with very good intent in some of this policy and some of these new tools that are out there, there's going to be some some roadkill that happens mm. and companies that get unfairly judged and in cases where, where people are being limited with opportunities that should have those opportunities or maybe given opportunities in cases where they're not ready to take them on. And that worries me as well because when you're the first, when you may be the first Latino or African-American on a board, but you don't have the background, it, Unfortunately, you're not only just representing yourself, but you're representing a whole demographic. Of course. And, and that's the part that does concern me in these kind of situations that you may have people all of a sudden in places where, where they're going to fail. And, and to what degree are people putting them in a position actually wanting them to fail as a way to justify why they shouldn't be doing that? And that, that, that does worry me. I think the one thing for me, which um, you know, I kind of take away from this episode or just to kind of highlight is the idea of the individual responsibility that we have to take action specifically, right? So again, the kind of board director example of succession planning, the mentorship that all of us can do to make sure that we're not just bringing on board 
diverse people and diverse voices, but we're actually helping to shape them and grow them in the organizations so that we're not just ticking a box. I think those things are very important and they're things that are hard work and they require effort. And, um, but nevertheless, there are things that I think are meaningful and can make for a better community and a better world. So hopefully that's, um, that's something that we can begin to focus on. All right. Well, thank you very much um, for listening and uh, we'll see you again next time. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.